You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. through the book of Revelation this semester. And we've said for the past couple weeks that the point of this book is to reveal that things are not as they seem. Over and over and over, that's the idea. And when you get to chapters 2 and 3, which is what we're going to look at tonight, you have these letters that Jesus writes and sends directly to seven churches. And the question is, why seven? Why not eight? Why not 15? We know that there were more than seven churches at the time. Well, here's why. It's because in the book of Revelation, the number seven is like extremely important. It's like a celebrity that keeps popping up all throughout the book. And the seven is a symbolic number to represent fullness and perfection. So by Jesus writing to by seven churches, he's basically communicating to the complete people of God. But this is his message to every Christian out there. Whether or not you're not, you may not find yourself as a Christian tonight, but this gives you an opportunity to kind of listen in on how Jesus speaks to his own people. So with all that in mind, let me uh, draw your attention to Revelation chapter 3. We're, we're not going to look at all seven of these letters. We're just going to look at this last one as sort of a representational slice of them all. So here we are. We're going to begin in verse 14. You can see it on the screen behind me. Or if you brought a Bible, feel free to turn there as well. Revelation 3, 14 says this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say... I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the, no- at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word for us um, tonight. Let me pray, and then we'll look at it together. Father, these are tough words um, even to read, and uh, so we would ask for your kindness and mercy to meet us um, as we interact with this. Uh, I pray that you would comfort the afflicted tonight, but that you would also afflict the comfortable. Draw us to yourself by your spirit, and uh, we would pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin uh, with a question tonight, and the question is this. What is your problem? What's your problem? 
In, in other words, uh, what is it about you that has the, the most potential to threaten or to sabotage or to jeopardize your own well-being? Or maybe another way of putting it is, what's your, uh, what's, what is your biggest liability, your biggest weakness? Well, with that sort of uh, rattling around in your mind, I-, I want to show you that this passage, Jesus comes to you and I as sort of a physician, and he gives this medical examination of our spiritual condition, and his diagnosis is a little bit startling. Because he's basically going to say that you and I uh, are, spiritually speaking, uh, fatally sick. But the problem is not what you think it is. Because if you're anything like me, when you hear that question, what's your biggest problem? What's the biggest thing that's wrong with you? If you're anything like me, your mind goes to like the dark, sinister things about yourself. Like shameful struggles or secret vices. Uh, like these things about yourself is where your mind goes. But Jesus is going to say, it's not that. It's actually uh, something that is completely counterintuitive. So what is it? What is our biggest problem? Well, uh, let's get into it. And here's how I want to get into it. Um, If Jesus is the physician saying that we are spiritually, fatally sick, uh, we need to look at the symptoms, we need to look at the diagnosis, and we need to look at his prescription. So there's your three points for where we're going to head tonight. We're going to look at the symptoms, the diagnosis, and then the prescription. So let's begin with the symptoms. Uh, Look at verse 15. I'm going to read it again. It says this. I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Some of your translations may say I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth, which is enticing. Um, But here's uh, what I've always heard when I hear this passage, when I hear Christians stand up and teach this, or maybe you've heard uh, different preachers say something like this, that this refers to your emotional temperature, your zeal. So to be hot for God is to be on fire for the Lord, to be passionate, to be excited for who he is. And to be cold towards the Lord is to be hardened, kind of ice cold, opposed to him. And so you've heard preachers stand up and say, uh, God would rather have you be cold towards him than be sort of an apathetic, in the middle, lukewarm Christian. He would rather you be cold than moderately lukewarm. And you've got to wonder, is that true? Is that really what Jesus is saying? He would rather you be ice cold opposed to him than sort of just moderately warm to him? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think this is about zeal or excitement or about passion. But to understand what this is about, you kind of have to go back in time and put on your detective clothes, you know, serial podcast style, and go back in time and try to figure out what was going on back then. Back then, this city called Laodicea was one of three cities, kind of like the Tri-Cities, just you know, east of Knoxville. And right across the river, about six miles across the river, was this other city called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was famous for their natural hot springs. They had natural hot springs water that people would go to for uh, refreshing, healing, medicinal baths. Heropolis over here, Laodicea here. Ten miles up the river was a city called Colossae. And Colossae sat at the foothills of these mountains. And so when the snow melted on the mountains, they would get this sort of abundant amount of cold, refreshing mountain water, which people would drink and obviously find refreshing, thirst quenching, blah, blah, blah. But 
the water situation in the city of Laodicea was nasty. They didn't have a natural resource of water, so that they, they would have to do is pipe in water through aqueducts. And by the time the water got to the city, it was kind of sludgy and cloudy and rivery and lukewarm. And it would have been a very common thing. If you weren't used to the water, you would taste the local water there. And guess what? You would spit it out of your mouth. So what Jesus is saying here is this. He's not talking about emotional temperature or zeal. He's talking about what is it like to be around you. I want my people to be refreshing and healing. But this church he's critiquing by basically saying when people are around you, they're revolted. They want nothing to do with you. You're, you're not refreshing. You're not healing. You're not who I want you to be. And to kind of um, put some skin on this, uh, I think what this looks like practically is, is Lila Garrity from Friday Night Lights uh, Season 2. I don't know if you've watched that, but Lila Garrity, remember at the beginning of season two, kind of went through her hardcore Christian phase. And one of the opening scenes of that season is she's in the parking lot of the school putting flyers on people's windshields to invite them to kind of a worship night meeting called Christ Teen Messengers, which I've considered changing the name of RUF to that, but I'll keep, I'll keep you posted. Um, So she's putting these flyers around. And, you know, Riggins, who's kind of like the stereotypical kind of classic party guy, like walks up to her while she's doing this with like a, you know, case of beer or something. And uh, they're talking. And he says, you know, Garrity, you you look good. You look real good. And here's her response. Thanks. It's probably because yesterday I was baptized and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And they have this kind of like awkward, weird conversation about that where he's like disclosing he just had a three-way and she's talking about her worship nights. And so it's this like really clash of values. And so towards the end of this conversation, she leaves. And as she's walking away, he goes, enjoy your Jesus. And she goes, enjoy your depraved hedonism. (laughs) And, you know, stupid high school bad writing conversation. But if you were to be around someone like that, maybe you've been around someone like that, sort of that sort of smug, self-righteous thing, it's, it's just kind of revolting. You just, want, you just want to get away from them. You don't want anything to do with them. And so here's where you have to ask yourself a really personal question. If you were to do sort of a checkup on yourself, which is this, is how do people experience me? Is that, am I refreshing and healing to be around? Or do people feel like they've got to cover up all of their cracks around me? Because if they think I'm going to see their cracks, they're going to feel judged by whatever I do, roll my eyes or whatever. How do people experience you? Can they be messy around you? But here's the question. You probably don't know the answer to that. You know who does know the answer to that are your closest friends. So, I, I mean, I really want to strongly challenge you to develop the fortitude to ask your friends that question. What is it like to experience me? I think that's a very vulnerable, very hard question. Because you won't know the answer to that. You won't know, am I that kind of person that's just unknowingly revolting to be around because I'm so self-righteous and smug and I think I'm better than everyone else and I don't even know it? Do you have the humility to ask your friends that question? What is it like to experience me? Am I refreshing and healing to be around or am I not? But also, I think we need to do a little corporate checkup as well. In other words, what is it like for people to experience us as a community of RUF? 
Uh, we want this. I mean, this is what we want. We want this to be a place where people can come and really feel refreshed and encouraged and equipped, regardless of where they are, that even if they're the, the messiest, wildest person on this campus, that this can be a place where they find grace and patience to think through what they, how they relate to Jesus and everything. Are we that? I think, that, I think some people, I'm sure some of y'all have experienced that, where you've come in here and you really have been like, man, RUF really is a place of refreshing and healing. I really do feel like I'm, I'm getting bathed in the grace of God in a, in a, in a way that does feel uh, soothing to my soul. But I think if you're uh, anything like me, you also know that there are other people that have come in through this community and have not experienced that, where they've experienced RUF to be clicky, or uh, to be a place where it's like, no one will talk to me unless I fit a certain description, unless I fit into a certain category. And they come, and it's where that feeling of this group is revolting or hard to be around, and so they leave and they don't come back. Now, I don't, of course, I'm not saying that to shame you or to shame anyone. If anything, that should shame me. But I think it should make us sad. It makes me sad. And it makes me think that Jesus is words here are a little bit more hitting close to home than we think it does. So those are the symptoms. It's hard to be around you because you're not refreshing, you're not healing. It's hard to be around me because I'm not refreshing and healing. Those are the symptoms. So, okay, what's underneath that? What's the diagnosis? Why is that the case? Well, uh, let's keep going. And again, we have, to, we have to do a little bit of historical digging in order for this to really land with you. Bear with me. We're going to do history for three minutes, and we'll circle back, and hopefully it'll pop like pop rocks. But the city of Laodicea, while it was really <coughs> infamous for its gross water situation, it was famous for three things. They had three things that every sort of local in Laodicea would have been proud of about their city. The first thing is that they were rich. This was a city that was unbelievably well-off financially. So much so that there was an earthquake that really disrupted a lot of the Roman Empire in the first century. And so many cities had to appeal to Rome to get like financial assistance. But Laodicea was one of the only cities that didn't have to kind of call in for help. In fact, you know how Knoxville has sort of this... It's kind of street slogan that you see on the back of, uh, you know, bumper stickers or whatever, keep Knoxville scruffy, you know. There was sort of a slogan that emerged from this city around the same time, which was basically this, we need nothing. It was kind of this, like, this is what we're, we're very well off. We don't need help even when an earthquake kind of devastates us. So that's the first thing that this place is known for, very rich. Second thing they were famous for um, being sort of on the front end of, of uh, producing high-end clothing. They had a unique wool that was kind of indigenous to that region, and so they were sort of on the cutting edge of the fashion industry. You think about Laodicea as sort of like Milan. It's like known for its fashion. Second thing. Third thing is that they had a state-of-the-art medical school. There was cutting-edge medical research that was going on, specifically on the eye, ophthalmology. It's a lot of P's and H's in that word, ophthalmology. 
And scholars believe that uh, this medical school was developing um, some sort of uh, salve to put on your eyes so that those who had trouble seeing could see better. So those were the three things this city was famous for and extremely gifted in. They were rich. Uh, they were, you know, they were kind of producing the goods when it came to clothing, and they had a banging medical school. Those were sort of the three things they were famous for. Now, look at what Jesus' diagnosis is in verse 17. Here it is. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you're rich, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. Look, people in Laodicea, you have so much going for you. You are extremely gifted. You have it all together. And that's your biggest problem. That's your problem. And here's where we see that things are not really as they seem. Because what Jesus is saying is this, is that the fact that you don't have any problems, that is your biggest problem. And here's where I think this is so just like crazy counterintuitive is because you and I, again, we think that the biggest strikes against us are sort of the nasty sins that we struggle with, drink too much, sexual sin, gossip, (laughs) cheating in class, whatever. All of those are awful, terrible things, and they'll destroy you, and they'll destroy the world that we're living in. Don't misunderstand me. But what Jesus is saying is, is something a little bit more profound. He's saying this, that your, the biggest strikes against you are not the things about yourself that you're most ashamed of. It's the things about yourself that you're most proud of. Your biggest problem, your biggest threat to your well-being, it's not the things about yourself that you're most ashamed of. It's the things about yourself that you're most proud of. Now, here's how... Um, this makes sense. If you think about it, if, if, if you're good at something, you are naturally gifted at something, that has the most potential for that to be a source of pride in you, for that to really sort of swell up and make you believe this is what makes me better than other people. This is what gives you that inner sort of delicious sense of self-satisfaction that I'm like this and they are not. I mean, think about it. Let, let's just use an example. Um, uh, what about being hardworking? Is it a good thing to be hardworking? Yeah, of course. It's a great thing to be productive, industrious. If you are hardworking, though, and that gift of yours really becomes a source of pride, that that becomes the thing in you that you say, this is why I'm good, this is why I'm special, that will inevitably make you look down your nose on people that you think are lazy. And that fractures community. That's revolting to be around. And you know what it's like. You can smell it. Even if somebody doesn't say it, you can sense that someone thinks they're better than you. And that's that revolting thing that destroys community. But it doesn't just destroy your relationship with each other. It destroys your relationship with God. This is why Jesus is critiquing the church in the way that he is. Because when he says, you're walking around saying, I don't need anything. I'm good. I'm the man. I got it all together. When that's the posture of your heart, you don't need Jesus. You don't live by faith. You don't live on daily dependence of him. He's just sort of an abstraction that's kind of irrelevant. And Jesus is saying, that's destroying your relationship with me. When that becomes your lifestyle, that I'm good, I don't have problems, I'm going to hide all my weaknesses, I'm going to hide my failures, Jesus is saying, that is, spiritually speaking, life-threatening. 
It's like having terminal cancer uh, and you think that you're convinced that you're fine and you're healthy. And if you think you're healthy, you'll never get the help that you need. That's why it's dangerous. So Jesus is saying, those are the symptoms. That's the diagnosis. Good grief, what do we do about it? What's his prescription? Where do we go from here? And I I really want to be practical as we kind of camp on this last idea of what is Jesus' prescription on what we do about this. Because here's the reality, is that we're all infected. We all have this. this kind of spiritual disease, as it were. Well, uh, if this is true, let's just say this. Let's say you actually went to a doctor, and the doctor looked at you, and after the diagnosis said, you are in a desperate, life-threatening situation. And here are some pills, and I want you to take one of these pills once a day. And if you do not take this pill, you are going to die. If that was you in that situation, my guess is you would go to, uh, you know, you, you would work really hard to remind yourself to take that pill. You'd put alarms on your phone. You'd have friends in place. you kind of put structures in place to remind you to take that pill because it's a matter of life and death. Well, um, Jesus is going to lay out this plan for long-term care for you and me, and it involves a daily, regular prescription plan that is really a matter of life and death. It's that serious. And so what I want to do is I want to look through. There's four of them, four sort of steps that we'll kind of briefly walk through, and then we'll be done. And here they are. I'll I'll give them to you first, and then I'll uh, uh, go into what they mean. First step is admit your need. Second step is purchase with nothing. Third step is fight the voices. And then the fourth step is to open the door. There's his prescription. Admit your need, purchase with nothing, fight the voices, open the door. First, admit your need. Look at verse 17 again. He says, you say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. These are radically different self-understandings. Their self-understanding is, I'm good, I'm rich, I got it all together, I don't need any help. Jesus is saying, I know you a lot better than you know you, and that's not true. You are radically out of touch with reality. You're broken, you're messy, you're so deceived, you're so weak that you would ruin your life if I didn't intervene. So really, sort of the first step to the path of healing is to see yourself in light of how Jesus sees you. To admit that that is actually true of you. His assessment of you is true of you. To admit that that's true. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the TV show The Office, But um, there's an episode early on where Michael Scott, the regional manager of Dunder Mifflin, a northeast paper company, uh, is is struggling financially. And he discovers that he's financially broke. And remember, he sits down and meets with Oscar, who is one of the accountants there. And Oscar looks at his numbers and basically says, I really think that you need to uh, declare bankruptcy. And you remember because Michael's kind of an idiot and he doesn't understand what that means, he walks out into the floor of the office and he goes, I declare bankruptcy. And Oscar, who's kind of off camera, goes, uh, Michael, that's, that's not actually how that works. But spiritually speaking, I think that is kind of exactly how that works. To be able to uh, say about yourself, I'm bankrupt, and to actually say that so that other people hear you. What it means to admit your need is to be ruthlessly honest about your weaknesses and your failures and your flaws and your struggles and your sin. 
to confess them, to let them be known. But man, the, the church and the Christian community, this seems to be the place where people do the exact opposite thing. Where you come into a place like RUF, you come into church, you come and do a Bible study, and most people feel that instinct of, this is the place i got to dress up. i got to hide the cracks. i got to smile and pretend like I got it all together. And Man, that is a tragedy. That is a tragedy because this should be the one place. The Christian community should be the one place on the face of the earth where you can come in and be messy and be broken with the full confidence that I'm going to be loved and I'm going to be accepted. You know, this is why, basically, for the past few semesters, if you've, if you've come to the thing that we do called Sunday Night Fellowship, we've had students share their stories with us, which has been a really great thing. What, what, what's going on when, students, when a student stands up and shares their story in front of you? It's them modeling vulnerability to you. It's them saying, I'm a mess, I don't have it all together, and I desperately need Jesus. Don't you want to be a part of a community where it's safe to be that? To to feel like you don't have to hide? You don't have to cover up the cracks that you can be you and actually know these people see me for who I really am and they still love me and embrace me and accept me? Man, that is what... But that first step, I think it's the hardest. To actually admit to yourself, I, I'm weak. I, I don't have it all together. I feel overwhelmed. I, am, I struggle with doubt. I struggle with whatever. To, to admit it to yourself and to other people, I think it's the hardest step. But that's the first really step on the path of healing. A regular daily step is to admit your need. Because your instinct is to hide it, to fight it. What about the second sort of prescription? Here's the, here's the second prescription. It, it's to purchase with nothing. Jesus just tells these people that they're broke and they're bankrupt. And what does he say in verse 18? I counsel you to buy from me gold and gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. He just told them they're they're broke. So this is weird. If they don't have any money, how can they buy from him? How can you buy something if you don't have anything to buy it with? This is a little bit of an echo from the Old Testament. Isaiah 55.1 says this. Come, you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without honey and without cost. Here's what Jesus is saying. When you come to me with nothing, I give you everything. When you come to me with nothing, I give you everything. Which means Jesus says, I will only relate to you by grace. You come to me with your sin and with your secrets and your doubts and your failures, nothing else, and he gives you everything. Why? Because he purchased everything with his life and his death on the cross. And what that does is it frees you and it frees me from feeling like I've got to go jump through hoops in order to get this God to like me. I've got to be really good and give him my spiritual resume and convince him I'm a good guy and I, I'm making good decisions so that he'll answer my prayers and so that he'll bless me. Jesus says... You can put all of that garbage down and come to me as you are with nothing in your hands and only your junk and only your struggles and only your sin. And guess what I'm going to do? By grace, give you everything. I will make you rich with my love. I will clothe your shame with my righteousness. I will give you eyes to see. But you have to come with him to him with nothing. It's one thing to admit that You're messy and you're needy and you're broken. It's a very another thing to turn to Jesus and say, accept me 
as I really am. But the promise of the gospel is that he will relate to you by grace. Don't need to clean yourself up. Don't need to offer your resume. Come to him with nothing. He gives you everything. Third, fight the voices. Fight the voices. Verse uh, 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Which I just, I love that that's in here. Because Jesus is basically saying, I know I'm saying some hard words to you, but it's not because I don't love you. I'm saying hard things to those whom I love. And then what's our response? So be earnest and repent. Now that's one of those Bible-y, Christian-y words, repent, that can be really confusing. What does that mean? Well, here's, um, here's an image that I think will help make sense of it. Uh, you remember the movie, I guess it was, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago now. I, I forgot to look it up. A Beautiful Mind, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe plays this brilliant mathematician named John Nash who has schizophrenia. And he lives in a, in, a, in a world, in a universe that doesn't actually exist. So he has these friends and he has these, you know, his friend's niece and he's employed by the, the CIA. And it's all, these are all figments of his broken mind. Doesn't actually exist. He thinks they do. But when he is finally diagnosed, his wife comes alongside of him and with a lot of patience and with a long journey, she begins to help him fight those images that pop up in his mind. These people that he sees that are as real to him as you and me that don't actually exist. And over time, he trains himself and disciplines himself to fight those voices and to ignore those things that pop up in his broken mind. Now, you and I, every single day, will have voices that pop up in our broken mind to try to convince you that you don't need Jesus. Voices like this, I would never do what that girl is doing. That guy in my class is a total loser. I would never do what he is doing. Those are the voices that pop up to convince yourself, I'm better than they are, and I don't need Jesus as much as they do. Or at least as much as Jesus says that I do. And those are the voices that you have to fight. Those are the voices that you have to train yourself to fight, to ignore, to push past. Because those are the voices that will say, you don't need Jesus. In other words, what it means to repent is to not just repent of the things that you're ashamed of, but to repent of the things that you're proud of. Some of you need to repent of having a quiet time. Doesn't mean that you should stop having a quiet time, but if you sit down and read the Bible and there's that voice that pops up and says, nailed it. Or that voice that says, this actually makes me uh, just a tad more spiritually serious than my roommates who I know are not having quiet times right now or haven't had a quiet time in a long time. That's the voice that you have to fight. That's the voice that is perverting and corrupting a very good thing that you have to repent of. Some of you have to repent of your grades. If your grades are the thing that is convincing you I'm better than other people and I need Jesus less because of this, you need to repent of it. Some of you need to repent of your hometown or your high school or whatever it is that has popped up in your head to say, this this makes me better than they. What do you need to repent of? Daily. Because those voices are popping up daily. Fight the voices. And here's sort of the last thing on this prescription list. It's to open the door. Verse 20 uh, has been used by a lot of Christians um, as a way to invite non-Christians to come to Jesus. You know, Jesus is there. He's knocking on the door of your heart. Are you going to respond or not? There he is. He's knocking. You're going to let him in? 
And I think oh, that's okay, but you've got to realize the context here is Jesus is talking to Christians. He's talking to the church here. He just said, I'm talking to those whom I love. So what does that mean that Jesus is knocking on the door of Christians' hearts, of the church? Here's what it means. Oh, actually, I mean, I just love that image. That image is so beautiful because what it shows you is that here we are on the inside, smug, self-righteous, self-reliant, arrogant, whatever, and it would be really... Uh, it would seem obvious that Jesus would be on the other side of the door with his arms folded saying, when you're ready, I'm out here. But what's he doing? He's pursuing. He's knocking. He says, I want in. I want a relationship with you, with you and all of your junk and all the way that you constantly screw this up. I want to be with you. In fact, what he says is, I want to come in and dine with you. I want to eat with you. Which back in this day, culturally speaking, that was a way of saying, we are family. To sit at a table, to share a table with someone, was to say, I relate to you on the same level as blood. And here is this Jesus that says, I want to come in and be with you. Why would you not? Why would you not want to let him in? Someone to come in and say, I just want to mutually, in- I want us to mutually enjoy each other's company. So to let Jesus in, to open up the door day by day, because our hearts, even as we sang earlier, our hearts are prone to wander. And each day, tomorrow, you're going to wake up, and your heart's already going to be wandering away from Jesus, and he's going to be there knocking. Let me in. I want to be with you today. Will you open up and let him in? That is the daily, regular lifestyle of a Christian. That's a prescription for life. That's what it means to be a Christian, is that every day you wake up and you admit your need. I need Jesus way more than I think I do. It's to purchase with nothing. It's to regularly, every day, go to him and say, I've got nothing, and thank goodness you give me everything. It's to fight those voices that keep bubbling up and saying, you're awesome, you're great, you don't need Jesus. And it's, to, it's just to keep opening the door and letting him in over and over and over. Now look, I'll end here. I was thinking about um, the Shawshank Redemption earlier today. And uh, I was reminded of a great quote. Remember what Andy Dufresne says at one point? What he says is, is this. You remember he goes, um, well, it all boils down to a simple choice. You've got to get busy living or get busy dying. And I think that's the choice that's on your heart and mind tonight. That's the choice that's before you. What are you going to do? This day and for the rest of your life, are you going to get busy living or get busy dying? Let me pray. Father, would you be so gracious as to um, help us to see that this prescription is good news, that it frees us, it frees us and actually uh, enables community to be developed with each other and with you at such rich levels. Would you enable us by your grace to admit the things about ourselves that we don't want to admit, the things that we, don't, the things that we want to hide? Help us to admit how messy and broken and how much we struggle. Help, that to, help us to be more vulnerable with each other. Help us to come to you and to find in you the source of everything that we could possibly need or want. Help us daily to fight those voices of, of, to, that will trick us into believing that we're something special, that we're, something, that, that we're better than we really are and we, we need you less than we, than we really do. And would you help us to open the door? to enjoy your presence day by day, knowing that you just you want to be with us. Father, this is extremely hard. This is extremely sobering. And yet I pray that it would also be extremely freeing and life-giving. 
change my heart, change the hearts of these folks here tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.